uh, Mr. Uh, Jay McCurdy, I believe, is going to be appearing virtually. Hi there. Mr. McCurdy, how are you? Good. How are you, Alan? Very good. Um, so tell us a little bit about yourself. How old are you? What do you do? Uh, what's your educational background? I am an elementary school teacher for completing my 24th year in education uh, based in London, Ontario with the Thames Valley District School Board, uh, 48 years old. Um, second gener third generation educator, actually. Grandmother was a kindergarten teacher. Mother was a high school English teacher for 30 years. So brother's a teacher. So it's kind of a family trade, if you will. And what grades do you teach? I teach uh, grades seven and eight. Uh, Predominantly, outside of one year of 24, I taught high school. Um, I trained, if you will, for for high school with my intermediate senior qualifications, but ended landing in a, in a grade eight position and uh, haven't turned back since. And uh, in a nutshell, what's what's the subject matter you want to talk about today? Well, you know, in large part with this whole inquiry and the whole COVID conversation um, and I appreciate every aspect of it and I agree with 95 to 99% of you know uh, all of the testimony that I've seen and in, in large part all the conversations that are dissenting conversations uh, um, I just really feel like something's missing from the conversation and that's uh, a child-centered conversation um, it's egregious to me that we're um, even myself at times, we feel, I feel like I'm being selfish. I'm talking about how has COVID affected me? Um, how has COVID affected my parents who are close to 80? Nobody is emphasizing the children. And it's, to me, it's egregious that we're not having a conversation about the impact on children. Children are the future. They're the primary resource. If we don't have children, then I don't think we have a future as a country, as a nation, as a planet. And I would like to emphasize that portion of the conversation and how important children are. Uh, to the future, and it's just it's it's just mind blowing to me. I've given up. I mean, my career has been spent. Uh, I mean, I love children. I have, I have a son and a stepson, and um, watching them go through COVID. I mean, it's just there's a level of selfishness to this that really bothers me in terms of the adults having the conversation about themselves. And uh, I guess I'm being extremely selfless. And if I sound um, holier than thou, that some people are not talking about the children, then forgive me, but I'm very passionate about this. I think you're referring to the impacts on children from the um, steps that were taken with respect to schools? Yes, and the greater, and the greater sort of, uh, not just the, the schools primarily, I can speak as a ground, uh, you know, a, a ground uh, on the, like a front sort of frontline worker on the ground, um, but also just the greater impacts of the COVID restrictions, the lockdowns, for example, um, and then the aftermath of COVID violence in schools and such. And stopping um, extracurricular activities and social interactions, correct? Oh, 100%, 1,000%. Um, I, mean, I have really researched on this. I mean, I, when, I, when I come across an article or come across any sort of, you know, literature on this, it's just, it just, it perpetuates and sort of validates everything I've been experience, uh, experiencing. My observations, um, my understandings of the impacts, the negative impacts on children, and I live it day to day as a teacher. I, I see those is uh, corroborated with umpteen articles, uh, research evidence, and so forth. Right. So I, I have sort of two perspectives: a sort of a top down one and a sort of a ground, uh, sort of on the ground, sort of face first. All right. And so in, in your specific school board, um, we know the lockdown started in March of 2020. What, give us a little bit of the chronology there in terms of what was happening. Well, the lockdowns started in March of 2020. Um, I think it was March break. Um, and the Ford government sent us out for the duration of the school year. So we had a you know, that was when COVID first hit and everybody was, you know, sort of wondering what the, uh, the you know, the level of severity of the threat was. And understandably so, we got sent, you know, online. Um, and there was a whole thing with that, how um, 
difficult that is in terms of logistics. But so, so that happened in the spring of 2020. Um, and there's, you know, all sorts of challenges with that. Um, some of the literature, I just, if I can just reference, I've got a few pieces. I don't have screen, screen sharing capability, but I would like to share sort of a few items that, um, corroborate sort of, as I said, it's sort of what I perceived as, um, the challenges of remote teaching at the time. Um, right. as I was sitting in front of this very computer trying to remotely teach for the first time, it was a new skill set that we were being asked to, uh, administer. Um, this, this first document here, I'll just hold it up short, uh, quickly is the science table. Uh, it was the advisory panel that, uh, Doug Ford had sponsored, um, published in June 4th of 2021. So that, I guess this would be reflective of the, uh, the challenges of remote learning. So there's just a, there's a passage here. Um, and ironically, the science table, if you're familiar, did recommend, uh, Ontario was one of the most high, uh, in terms of jurisdictions, the Ontario, uh, uh, province of Ontario was locked down four times in total, um, more than I believe any jurisdiction in the world. So this is where it becomes a problem for, uh, G- Ontario centric conversations. And that's, I mean, why I've experienced such, uh, impacts from this. But so I'll just read quickly just from the, the science table advisory panel, um, comprised of many researchers and such, uh, impact on educators. These policy changes had direct and indirect effect on students' classroom context and their teachers. In general, the strongest in-school influence on teachers' learning is their teacher. Teacher effectiveness is deeply shaped by the context in which they work. COVID-19 has radically disrupted these contexts with considerable impacts on teachers' work, as well as their own health and well-being. Teachers have needed to dramatically change how they teach with limited time uh, or specific training. Uh, they're supporting students, many of whom themselves are exceptional, uh, under exceptional stress. Uh, furthermore, they assume responsibilities associated with ensuring safety and, and their surrounding conditions that were considered by many to be unsafe. This is not a teacher. I'm not trying to have <laughs> this sounding like a teacher and sort of centric conversations. Um, I just jump to my other passage quickly here. Um, as well as learning to teach remotely, all teachers had to shift much of their teaching to a virtual environment, at least during the worst periods of the pandemic. This meant having to acquire or increase their own digital proficiency, which ranged from mastering technical tools to developing pedagogy, such as managing group work, assessments online. It also meant developing digital proficiency with learning among their students and trying to cultivate capacities for self-education, self-determination among these learners so they could work independently at home while their teachers were working with other students or while uh, teachers, students themselves were working on uh, asynchronous tasks. That comes from the, uh, the RSC, Children and Schools During COVID and Beyond, the Engagement and Connection Through Opportunity publication, uh, 2021. Um, so yeah, that was the challenges with, um, all right. That, that was from the teacher's perspective as to the, um, challenges that were faced by the teachers. Let's, let's, let's look at that. I'm going to, I'm going to leave that quickly. I just want to say that it's, that was a very disruptive thing. Um, that was for the government to pretend that online remote learning was effective and, uh, you know, how to, how to, the, the efficiency and the effectiveness of that was, was, was awful. And so that's the beginning of it. I'm pretending that it was okay. All right. And so we were talking about, you know, the spring of 2020. Just oh, give us the overview from spring of 2020 until today, let's say. Um, how much, what, what time period were the children actually in school for that, let's say, three-year period? So the spring of 20, we were off for the remainder of the school year in 2020. In 20, the school year 2021, we had um, a delayed entry in, 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 that, in the fall. Um, we did uh, come in, I think, in late September. We were off twice that year in the school year, we had a delayed uh, Christmas break. So we, we were in school with strict COVID measures for, for the fall, uh, heading up to the Christmas break. And then uh, they extended the uh, the Christmas break, if you will. Um, I have my stats here. In, I mean, in total, I can tell you that Ontario students wrote for 28 weeks, which is an uh, incredible number. Um, we have a four-week extension after the Christmas break. Uh, that would be in 2021. Um, and then later that year, they delayed the spring break. We had our March break, um, till April. 
uh, I don't know the exact date, but they delayed the March or the March break till April, and we were off again for the rest of the balance of that year. And then the fourth and final lockdown came in the following school year, so 21, 22. Uh, they extended the Christmas break by I think it was eight days. So in total, over the span of you know uh, COVID, spring 20, and two school years subsequent to that, you're looking at 28 weeks of uh, remote learning. Um, and that's remote learning, you know, the challenges of that. And then I can also speak to what's called, I call pandemic teaching, which is at school. Um, so 28 weeks in Ontario, um, the damage from that remote learning is, I mean, but the stories that, that came from colleagues, the challenges with remote learning, um, the family, the impact on families trying to manage their, their children at home. As a teacher myself with, with the son who's in I think, grade six, seven, eight at the time, trying to help him with his work, just um, again, I, I coped, I'm competent, I coped, but families that were just uh, disadvantaged, the literature says that in large part, the communities with, with uh, low access to internet, um, low income communities had virtually no experience with online. I mean, it's, it's egregious to think that everyone is sitting here with internet connection and access to computers and laptops and a large portion of the, you know, inner city schools, Toronto and so forth. Um, it was virtually non-existent. So to again, to pretend that remote learning was at all. Um, and again, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to jump ahead for a second here. Later on, I was hoping to talk about, you know, in Sweden, for example, the you know, school-age children were not locked down uh, at all, not once. Um, there were different approaches with this around the world. Um, North America, you know, Canada specifically, in the United States, it seemed like the Western approach was a bit over the top. And if you look back over to Sweden, um, Sweden recently had a commission um, that reflected uh, on the, you know, the, basically the the formalization of the government lockdowns in Sweden um, versus, I'm sorry, in, in Western countries versus Sweden's was more informal. Like, you know, we mask if you want to mask, distance if you want to distance, you know, don't go to work if you're sick versus the mandated, you know, uh, directions from our governments. Um, they didn't, they did not close schools down in Sweden. It did not happen in elementary schools. So you have very extreme in Ontario versus, you know, the other end of the spectrum in Sweden. And I'm just trying to, <laughs> if we look at the data, um, the commission from Sweden, I'll hold this up right here. There was a commission held that um, Sweden's no lockdown COVID strategy was broadly correct. Commission suggests. So they, they reflected on whether their uh, approach was, was okay or not. And then essentially they're saying it was just fine. I mean, the stats on their deaths originally, they didn't lock down, might be a bit higher. Um, but if we talk about even the stats after the fact with, uh, we can talk about excess deaths and that whole conversation are really low in Sweden. So there's a whole other conversation there. This other research paper here, it's International Journal. Um, sorry, I'm forgetting. International Journal of Educational Research talks about the, uh, the learning loss, uh, no learning loss in Sweden during the pandemic versus the literature that talks about the learning loss because of the lockdowns in Ontario. So there's, uh, two, there's sort of two ends of the spectrum and, I mean, we can argue where that perfect uh, that sweet spot would have been for locking down the children and not locking them down and so forth. Well, let's let's get to the um, learning consequences in so far as the uh, remote learning was concerned and the closing of schools. So, tell us, you know, from your uh, personal perspective, what were you seeing with your students? So a, a large proportion of disengagement. So, for example, as a grade eight teacher, I would have, you know, close to 30 students in my class. And I, I saw a participation rate of 50% maximum, uh, even. Sorry, when, when you to, say participation rate, um, are you talking about showing up or, or participating in the events in, in the classroom you know, remotely? Uh, well, both, I suppose. Showing up means, you know, if you have a, a, a meet like we're having right now, a Google Meet where I'm instructing, you might have 50 to 60 percent in terms of showing up for the, you know, uh, for attendance in that class. Uh, in terms of submitting assignments, if you had, a, if I had posted an assignment, you're down to a third, somewhere in the third range, 30 percent that would hand in something. Um, I mean, there, there was a difference in 2020. There was a messaging that the children found out about that uh, it, it, it didn't matter. Um, the direction from the board is that, and this is problematic for this to get out maybe to the public, is that assessments didn't matter. Uh, the, the philosophy was do no harm. So, for example, if students didn't participate, didn't submit their assignments, their marks could not go down. Um, they caught wind of this. I mean, 
uh, students were choosing to go outside and play instead of doing schoolwork and knew their marks wouldn't go down. So um, when that messaging got out, participation in 2020 was low. Now, later in the pandemic, when we, we understood that we might be going back online and doing remote learning, um, assessments, evaluation would count a little bit higher. But uh, in 20, in the 2021, in the, uh, I spoke to the spring um, and the summer, um, participation rates were still 50 maximum 50 in terms of handing assignments and 50 and they and uh, sorry at that time it was the messaging was assignments will count uh, towards your mark and your mark can go down so um very low participation rate overall for all sorts of reasons i can imagine and um what about the actual learning you know from from the fact that this was being done remotely how how did that impact on it from your perspective um, I mean, the quality of learning was, was, was atrocious, I can imagine. I mean, the, imp the importance of in, in school learning is, I mean, the, the, it's, I mean, the data suggests how important it is, how important the teacher is, how important social interaction is at school. It's, it's pretty much, uh, it, it's every, it's everything. Um, it's critical. Extracurricular activities, the socialization of children. I mean, it's um, it's one thing to say. I was talking to a colleague the other day, but we had a reflection on this. You know, if an adult, um, you know, a university college age students are taking online courses. I took online courses to you know further my education. Um, we have learned to be <laughs> to be learners through the school system, leading up to a point. Um, the social interaction that children receive from school is um, you can't underscore how important it's. It's it's critical. It's fundamental. It's how they learn to interact socially. Um, I see the outcome of this I see on a daily basis in terms of the um, what was taken away, the opportunities. Imagine 28 weeks. We're talking about 28 weeks removed with remote learning. What about pandemic learning when the students were forced to, you know, in the year 20, the school year 2021, forced to distance uh, during the whole year, it was distancing their desks apart. They were in cohorts on the schoolyard where they couldn't play with their friends. So you would have two classes, for example, uh, partnered up on our schoolyard. This is a large schoolyard. Um, some schools I can imagine have zero capacity for this. I'm not sure how they manage this, this, uh, this restriction, but two classrooms would partner up and play on one part of the yard. Um, and two other classrooms would partner up and play on the other part of the yard and they could not interact. It was a strict rule that students, so imagine your best friend is in cohort B and you're in cohort A and you can't walk over across a line to go talk to your, uh, your best friend who's been cohorted and is separate and been segregated from you. Just little things like that. I mean, the psychological damage and it's some of the students being far too young to understand why can't I go talk to my friend? Um, in, inside the classroom, you've got uh, limits on how you can teach during the pandemic, what you can use as materials. I mean, I can't run science experiments. Um, computers had to be covered with cellophane and wiped down with, you know, spray after use. You, uh, um, in gym class, you could only place uh, the games where the kids were distanced apart. They couldn't actually come in contact. Um, I, I could go all on all day long with just those, like I said, as a teacher, they're experiencing the, you know, the children, um, how they were being asked to learn, the conditions of which were atrocious for learning, um, wearing masks the whole time. Um, it's a whole other thing, right? Um, some, it's just, it's sometimes arbitrary. I can tell you a quick story about masking is that masking was, you know, enforced incredibly for, uh, for the two school years, 2021 and 21, 22 was enforced strictly for three quarters of that time. It was in the spring of 2022 where the students could, we could demask and the regulations, uh, um, were, were lessened. If a student, you know, I'd often see staff members yell at students for not having their masks on. Get your mask on. Masks would slip down. So they're constantly being told, get your mask up. During eating time, of course, masks can come off and they can eat. Um, but they can't talk. If they were talking, they would yell that by the supervisor. Get, you know, you can't talk. You're either eating or you're talking. If you're talking, your mask is on. So that's a, for almost two years, a hard thing for a little kid to kind of navigate, you can imagine. Um, stressful for the teachers to feel like they had to enforce that the whole time. Um, and those are just sort of minor things, but very major things that the outcome of that, I feel, has been deeply felt by, you know, the students and uh, their, their age of development, not understanding what was going on, why, and being so fearful of the whole the whole time. And as we all know right now, the, the case fatality rate for children is incredibly low. They were never at risk. 
I think after two years in the pandemic, there were 20, uh, 20 Canadians under the age of 20 that had died from COVID. To this day, it's, it's under 100. And some of those cases we know are died with COVID and died from COVID, whatever that means. Anyway. So as you're seeing the students coming up now uh, into your grades, um, what are what are you observing in terms of their, you know, skill levels, their learning levels? Are they where you would expect them to be for that grade level? Far behind, far behind where they're supposed to be. And this is where you know my 24 years of teaching. I mean, if you're running an experiment, you were controlling variables. I mean, I've only taught grade seven and eight for 20. So for 23 years, I've. Uh, this age group. So if you're running a controlled experiment, I can speak to what are the differences you see and are they causal or correlational or coincidence? Um, this is where I would say I did the clear, the anecdotal data, data backed up with the research says that the, the, the lag in the skill sets is there in terms of academic lags, of course. Um, we're trying to catch young children up with, with just learning uh, how to read and write uh, at, a, at a basic level. At an intermediate level where I'm at, it's... Um, it's learning skills in large part what I'm seeing. I'm seeing a lack of resiliency, problem solving, uh, coping, um, co levels of confidence. Uh, they, uh, their ability sort of to, you know, if I was to give a mundane task to persist with it with resiliency and work through it, um, there's the, the learning skills uh, lag and deficit is immense. Um, I struggle with it every day. I've, I'm looking to still give accommodations. Um, the help that I have to give to children, the extra help that I have to give to them to um, move through a given task, the extra time that I have to give to them, um, and just their ability. Like if I have a, let's say I'm giving, I, I teach a unit, I'm just finishing up a unit on, uh, for example, right now we're doing angles, we're doing a angle relationships, you know, I teach it, let's say it's a two week unit on that. And then I, I mean, I'm pretty old school. I give a quiz and, you know, the, the acquisition of the information, the knowledge, how to learn um, would be, I mean, it's just, you know, a certain sort of expectation that I have versus I teach for two weeks and I administer a quiz and it's, it's just not there. They're not acquiring the knowledge at the same rate. They're struggling even with test taking. There's anxiety, massive amounts of anxiety with test taking. Um, so many things that I'm seeing uh, in terms of that. So, and then on a social level, you can imagine um, the violence is up in schools. That was another aspect I was going to speak to is their ability to, to relate to each other or the lack thereof will equate to conflicts, of course. And there's, as a teacher, there's all sorts of fights on in the schoolyards every year. Um, kids are kids and that's how they learn too. They learn through conflicts, right? So it's important to know how to, you know, if you got into a fight, why you got into a fight, um, you learn from that. You learn what mistakes you made as an individual, how to reconcile that and, uh, you know, make up and move on sort of thing. I'm seeing a higher prevalence of interactions that are, that come from nowhere. Uh, a basketball game on the yard breaks into a fight and broke into a fight over, um, I teach grade eight, straight grade eight this year. And I tell my boys, I'm a basketball coach. Uh, we actually had a very successful season. We won our, our West region with the, uh, with first place gold medal. So very proud of that. But on the yard, when they're playing ball, it's, you know, the slightest things turn into a conflict or a fight. And I'm just constantly dealing with, you know, and the, I say pre-COVID, that, that instance of two boys, you know, posturing one another after a basket is made wouldn't have, wouldn't have turned into a, perhaps a fight or something like that. On a grander scale, there's, um, especially the Toronto board, they're dealing with just high levels of extreme violence in the school board. Um, anyway, I'll, I'll stop there, Alan, and let you continue. In terms of the, um, Def learning deficits. What, in your view, is the primary reason for that? Well, with, without a doubt, just all of the uh, closures, closure of schools. And I, I mean, I can speak to Ontario, like I said, 28 weeks of remote learning. I mean, comparative to what, three years in the pandemic. Um, you know, maybe that's not the bigger part would I mean, collectively, I'm looking at everything compressed into, you know, three years of the education system being affected and altered uh, as, as deeply as it was. It's with it's I mean, the evidence is in front of my face every day. And I talk to colleagues and they, they're talking about the problems at school that we're seeing and everything. And my response is, well, what do you think is going to happen if you enact these measures? 
I mean, this is, we're living through this for the first time. So you can either correlate this, you can say, or a causal connection that the students are suffering and lagging and violence is up because of COVID or it's just, it's no, it's just, it's, it's some other variables at play here. So um, I think it's, it's clearer than clear. I mean, to me, it's clear that uh, if you don't, I mean, the disruption in, in the system and the disruption of learning and this disruption of, of uh, social gatherings and the normal life uh, that the children were expecting to uh, experience, um, that's, you don't have to be a rocket scientist. You don't have to be, you don't have to be a, a, a research scientist to see that, of course, this is the disruption in their social lives, primarily over even their academic life was, was incredibly damaging. I mean, my son had his 13th birthday turning into a teenager. Um, what was the gatherings? You couldn't gather at that point. I mean, you're having a, you know, uh, a special birthday for my son and it's a COVID birthday. It's no one, he can't have a birthday party, you know, and that's fine. He had lots of birthday parties leading up to that. But imagine the young children, their first birthday party, you know, their fifth birthday party. Um, how important that is, you know, watching the little kindergartners, you know, around the school, how, how, we had an assembly yesterday. Uh, we're having assemblies, you know, for the first time in the last year where the school gathers in one area. And it's just, you know, I was up in front of the school um, presenting and down in front you have the young kindergartners and they don't have their masks on and they're looking up all bright eyed and, um, and, and wonderful. And they're, they're just so happy to be there. And it's just amazing. You know, that, that was that experience was stripped from them for, you know, two full years pretty much. How can you argue that wouldn't be problematic or detrimental to their, you know, their, uh, to their growth and development? It's, it's, it's pretty clear, actually. So you were obviously concerned about this as it was going on. What about your colleagues? What, what was the talk within, you know, the teacher community as opposed to the, you know, administrators? What was the feeling amongst the the teachers so far as you're concerned? I would suggest that it was sort of, um, I mean, we're kind of like frontline workers. I don't know if there was on a day-to-day basis much reflection. It was just get through the day. You know, it was a lot of stress. COVID teaching was very stressful, especially in twenty the school year 2021 and even the fall of uh, 21 the next school year you know getting through the day was just like uh, triage it was getting just get through the school day we all know it's just how challenging it is to to teach under covid conditions and restrictions and limitations in the school setting what you're used to being able to do versus what you're being forced to do just such a challenge i mean we were all thinking it we were all uh, living it um i don't think there was much discussion it's almost like it's not even close to be uh, in terms of equating it to healthcare what it would have been like to work in a hospital um you know, during the, the heavy waves, perhaps where the stress level on the nurses and such and the system is collapsing because there isn't enough staff. Right. So and that's another thing that happened, basically, was that during COVID, the, the stress level, uh, stress levels of teachers went up and a lot of teachers retired early. They went off on stress leaves and such. Um, so we were living it and just we weren't discussing it too much, but it's almost like you wink and nod to your colleague and say, you know, here's another COVID day. Um, our, we have a board in our office where it's an absentee board and it, you know, you can walk in on any given day and see the, which staff are off and who's filling in for them. Um, something became sort of very, uh, patterned during COVID is that the board would be full. It would be long, full, and, uh, um, you would have multiple staff off during any given day because of various reasons. Maybe they had COVID, maybe they were sick, but other, other parts were stress leads were high. Um, it was basically triage in the school system for a better, better part of two years. And we're just coming out of that now in terms of like the system not collapsing. And this is just one school and one school board. I'm in London. I, I mean, I, I can't imagine what it was like in other jurisdictions like Toronto. Um, there was just two references here I wanted to find quickly in that regard too. Forgive me for uh, through my papers here. There's one reference quickly in terms of the, um, I call it the system damage. Uh, this is, again, this is coming from the, uh, the science advisory, science table COVID-19 advisory panel. Um, by the way, this was something that Doug Ford did have his, uh, sorry, the Ford government had their hands on um, prior to the uh, final and fourth lockdown in 2022. And what they were advising uh, Ford government not to lock us down for the fourth time. This panel, this paper basically was the proof uh, in the pudding that we should avoid lockdowns at all costs with children. And uh, we've already had three, but he disregarded that and locked us down for the fourth time. So back to my, uh, the system damage. Uh, this is a pay, uh, from page eight in that, uh, that paper. 
Um, a highly, uh, this would be probably, I think, elementary perspective where there is a higher proportion of female teachers. A highly feminized workforce, educators as a group were particularly affected by carrying responsibilities for their own children at home while continuing to work. A national survey suggests that teachers have experienced considerable stress and burnout during COVID-19. There are further reports of teacher shortages resulting from leaves and attrition from the profession in light of COVID-19 context. As a result of these shortages, exceptional measures such as allowing student teachers temporarily teaching certificates, and in some cases hiring non-teachers were undertaken. Um, there may be long-term effects on the profession in terms of the teacher supply. And I've got a, a quick story for you. Uh, one other reference very quickly um, from a article from, this is the National Post, author Paul Bennett, uh, speaking to violence in schools, February 27, 2023. Uh, I'm just going into the fourth page. Amid, this is a U.S. perspective. Amid, amid, uh, amid fears of a national U.S. teacher shortage, the National Education Association now claims that half of all American teachers have reported considering or actively planning to quit because of deteriorating school climate and safety. Uh, it says so far this has not reached that crisis point in Canada's systems, but I would argue that it has. Um, one quick story, I think it was a couple of months ago, I had a supply teacher come in, and this is how bad it is right now. Um, we're pulling um, teachers' colleges now to your program. They're pulling teacher, uh, teacher candidates from the, the programs, either first or second year, and employing them as supply teachers. Uh, and even worse than that, we've got, I know in Toronto, my brother teaches in Toronto, and it happens to me is that they have uh, three teachers college candidates. So you've got someone just in an undergrad degree, uh, let's say third or fourth, fourth year with an undergrad. Um, um, I don't know who comes in the room, and I don't know who asked the question, would you like to go teach in a school tomorrow? Um, and so this this wonderful young lady came in and gave it, gave it her best, but um, had no business being in front of uh, the kids that day. You can imagine that just the we're trying to close the gaps there. Healthcare is even worse. Um, teaching is right behind, probably. Sounds like it's a vicious circle. Absolutely. Um, what are some of the other system impacts that you're seeing and have observed? <clears throat> uh, system impacts... The, the two just are the resources, like I'd mentioned, just maintaining the school's integrity, uh, the school system integrity, so having enough quality staff and teachers in front of the children. Um, that's still very prevalent and pervasive. Um, the only other, well, the other system damage would be, like I spoke of, was, was the violence in schools where um, the stress on the system right now is difficult. Administrators are really struggling to um, balance, you know, the proceedings of of their school in terms of, you know, administering education and every day and, and it's managing the building with just the, the prevalence of misbehavior. And, you know, in an elementary school, we're not, we might not use the, the word, I mean, we can use the word violence, but I mean, we're talking about, you know, children having temper tantrums and throwing chairs and there, there are staff getting hit with chairs. There are staff getting hit with items. And some of these special needs scenarios are are sort of extreme. But um, administrators are having um, a heck of a time trying to sort of navigate and mitigate sort of the outcome in terms of how the children are coming out of COVID. It's, I just think that the system damage is that um, there's just pressure to keep the school healthy. Uh, the school system's healthy so that learning can happen. I mean, learning is critical and learning is being compromised right now with the um, the collective stress of the children and the collective stress of the adults combined with sort of this misbehavior um, is just making teaching and learning challenging on a day-to-day -day basis. And it's, it is, it's very challenging. I'm, like I said, I'm experienced, very experienced at my job, but I'm seeing um, younger teachers uh, not equipped to cope with with this and, and, uh, younger and younger administrators not equipped to cope with, uh, managing it as well in terms of the, the higher level of misbehavior and violence in the schools. Have you heard of or, uh, been party to any discussions from officials in the Ministry of Education where there is some sort of recognition or acknowledgement that locking down the schools, closing them down and moving to remote learning was was a problem, was something that shouldn't have been done. Is there any sort of talk like that? Yeah, we're not 
we're not seeing anything. I'm not seeing anything from our jurisdiction in Ontario from our, I mean, on a board level or provincial level. The only thing I was able to, I was curious myself about this was to find was in, from the United States. Um, there's an article here I can show from the Wall Street Journal. That's from the, the Union. It's written from the Wall Street Journal author. Sorry. Um, right. Uh, I've sorry, give, read, given read that, that to the, the I've given that to the commissioners. One of them is an editorial in the um, Wall Street Journal from November 2nd, 2022. And I'll just read the opening sentence. Believe it or not, American Federation of Teachers Chief Randy Weingarten on Monday tacitly acknowledged that keeping schools closed during the pandemic was a mistake. Miracles happen, apparently. Um, but what is being mentioned here is that Ms. Weingarten and her colleagues, um, and needless to say, the same is true in Canada, they were the ones who were pushing for this um, with the greatest, um, you know, enthusiasm from day one, right? It was, yeah, from the, from the union perspective, there's another whole other, you know, can of work arms there where it's, you know, they're trying to protect their members. And I would imagine, you know, many teachers wanting the schools closed down permanently just in fear of COVID. And uh, some of the research says that in large part, COVID wasn't transmitted in schools. It was tr- transmitted through community, meaning that the, uh, children who picked up COVID got it from their homes. They didn't get it at school. So um, the union perspective uh, the union approach, uh, in terms of their messaging, would have been let's protect our members, and the best way to protect our members is to not be at school at all. So, um, but now, like that article you referenced there, I have that article. The the author of that, uh, uh, sorry, there was another article referenced in the Atlantic by Emily Oster. Oster cites school closures as one example. There is an emerging, if not universal, consensus that schools in the U.S. were closed for too long. The health health risks in school spread were relatively low, whereas the cost to students' well-being and educational progress were high. Um, that's pretty much a snapshot right there. It, it seems to me um, that the thinking that went into this uh, is quite similar to the thinking that went into COVID policies generally, which was there there wasn't any real assessment of the of the costs versus the benefits is is that a fair statement that's absolutely my, my mantra my mantra has been cost benefit analysis from day one um the cost benefit analysis in terms of the the, the perspective of the child i mean in context of learning i mean they spend a lot of time at school so it's important that that, that that experience is on the table for them, but just generally on a societal level as well. Um, the, the cost, what we asked students to do through the pandemic, um, like I said, case, case fatality rate, COVID uh, infection rate even was, was low with children. Um, it was been, been proven that the, they lacked the ACE2 receptor in the nasal cavity to even, for COVID to even sort of stick. Um, and when they got sick, they didn't get that sick at all. In fact, post-COVID, the, the RSV, that respiratory illness, I mean, my anecdotal evidence says it took down a lot of kids in a lot more severity than COVID did during COVID. Um, but yeah, like in terms of greater societal level, the damage is there um, over, over that time. Um, cost benefit is just unbelievable what we asked the kids to do and what we took from them versus, I mean, if from a child perspective, you're, you should be working as a society to, to protect your children. I mean, we should, we should think about that, right? Um, there was a story, my, my, one evidence piece I wanted to reference here that speaks to that. There was a, you, some of you, um, commissioners included might be familiar with the Great Barrington Dec- Declaration, um, written by, co-authored by, by three significant, uh, doctors. One of them, Dr. Jay Bhattacharya was a prophet at Stanford. He's got a PhD in economics and focuses on health economics. Um, he, I watched a podcast with him recently where he referenced a, uh, I'm not sure if he was an author or recent, Search your last name, Kostakis, in a pediatric journal from the spring 2020 closure. This is citing uh, data that it's estimated that 5.5 million life years have been taken from children from that one, from that particular time frame. Um, is, is a very staggering stat. Um, 
you're taking life years away from the children. My father, who's 79 years old, old had a stroke uh, about six months ago. My father lived a long, full life. You know, it's tragic when anyone when anyone's life ends, and it's sad. But he, you know, he's 79. Uh, he's now 79, and uh, pops has lived a long, uh, amazing life, and it's difficult uh, watching him in the aftermath of his stroke. But um, you know, he ha he's lived his life. These children haven't lived their lives yet. It's just. It's just mind blowing to me what, what we've done, the damage that we've potentially done. Without that calculation, Alan, what you said about that cost benefit, there is, in my opinion, there is zero cost benefit done. Absolutely none. What's, what's really troubling about this, it seems to me, is that, um, the children can't advocate for themselves. We're, you know, collectively, adults are the decision makers and, um, uh, it's hard not to reach the conclusion that we failed our younger generation here. What do you say? I think we failed them in every way possible. I can't imagine failing them any more than, than we have. I, I don't know. It sounds very pessimistic and extremist to say this, but I, I, there, we have a struggle in front of us right now. It's not, it's not, um, I, I'm not, making this up i'm watching it i'm just wondering what that long-term impact is going to be um longitudinal studies and such that are going to be able to even correlate this and say you know how are we going to be able to look back in 10 or 20 years in terms of economic you know activity and the gdp and, and say well, it's because of uh you know covid you know of course this is happening there would be no admission of that anyway it's going to be blamed on other variables and factors 10 20 years down the road but um i just really have a i have a gut Got suspicion. I have, I have lots of papers around sitting around me right now that are studies and professionals that say this is going to be a problem. Um, very smart people that are acknowledging it as opposed to not acknowledging it. Um, so I, I think that's important that if, you know, if we could, you know, my, here's my, my takeaway with this is to not make this mistake again is you know, we might be paying a large price for this down the road, and that's something we have, it's inevitable. It's, it's going to come at us, and we'll just have to manage it. But we better not do this again the same way. There needs to be a cost-benefit analysis at the very least, and a conversation where all stakeholders are allowed into the conversation. It's not just the government dictating. It's uh, it's everyone having a voice, and that's why I really appreciated being able to testify here is giving the average citizen that voice. Um, there's a lot of us that are highly intelligent, uh, that are in this room today that have a lot of perspectives and a lot of stories. We don't need to do fancy research papers to understand this has been impactful in, in, in a in negative way across all sectors, uh, across the economy. Um, I have a friend who lost his job from COVID. I have had watched small businesses close during COVID. Uh, it's just, if you don't, you don't have to look at papers to see it. You just look out on your front, you know, your front stoop and walk, look outside and see the damage in your neighborhood, your community. There were some personal perspectives that you wanted to share. Is there anything else that you wanted to say on that? Um, tell, tell us about just, the impacts of, you, you talked about the impacts of remote learning, but what about the masking when the kids were even in, in the classroom? What, what do you see as the impact of that? Well, the masking was a symbol of, would, of fear. So there's a psychological impact of, you know, what we sort of sent this message that we're going to go to school and we're going to wear masks and be careful if you catch COVID. It's very dangerous. It, something can happen to you. Um, so that was when the data came in. I mean, like I said, in 2020, and then a lot of the research, you know, medical research scientists started collecting the data and the hospital data came in. It, it became evident that COVID wasn't directly a threat to children. But the masking, you know, at schools, when, when it's a room full of children, um, if I'm not sick, if I'm not symptomatic, and this whole nonsense about asymptomatic, uh, you know, carrying COVID asymptomatically, I don't buy it. Um, if you're not symptomatic, I don't, I don't pretty sure you're not going to, you're not going to give it, but that's my personal perspective. But the symbolism of the masking was for, for uh, was pervasive because of, I think, the fear. Your children are like, what's, why are we wearing masks? What's, what's going on here? Um, it's just, it was outside of trying to teach with a mask, with the masks on, listening to children talk and trying to teach with a mask on and the limited sort of 
you know, uh, sonic experience, we'll call it, was, was challenging. Um, but, you know, when masks came down, I, I mean, and I watched staff actually berate children, get your mask back up, right? Um, that, that's, that's a whole other component. Um, but the damage of the masks, I don't know. I don't know. It just it was a symbol of fear. Um, after the masks were, here's, here's sort of a, an anecdotal observation. After the mask restrictions were lifted, children still continued to wear masks in large part in the school setting. Um, still fearful of, I mean, either, I can imagine their parents may have said you need to wear a mask still, but a lot of children chose to wear one. A higher, higher grade students, grade seven, eight, were still wearing them for some time. And, um, I was sort of of the mantra. It's time to take them off. It's time to breathe. It's time to see your face. It's important. Um, so take them off, take them off. I mean, I wasn't pushing it. I was just sort of advocating for it and sending subtle messages that it was important. There's a, I'll just read a quick, uh, a quick excerpt from this article. It's uh, from the American Institute of Economic Research. Uh, I've got page 5 of 11. Just a quote about masking that I sort of highlighted. Concerns are being raised regarding psychological damage and why, uh, why a mask is not just a mask. There, there is tremendous psychological damage to infants and children with potential catastrophic impacts on the cognitive development of children. This is even more critical in relation to children with special needs, those within the autism spectrum who need to be able to recognize facial expressions as part of their ongoing development. The accumulation, uh, sorry, the accumulating evidence also suggests that prolonged mask use in children or adults can cause harms. Uh, so much so that Dr. Blaylock states the bottom line is that if you are not sick, you should not wear a mask. Furthermore, Dr. Blaylock writes, by wearing a mask, the exhaled viruses, okay, we won't get into that part, but the psychological damage. I have a, a stepson who has special needs, uh, diagnosed with autism disorder, who basically stopped going to school because of mask wearing. He was unable to attend school and wear a mask. It wasn't, it wasn't possible for him to do that. Um, no didn't, school couldn't at all. wear a mask. It's, it's a, it's a sensory, it's a sensory issue. It's, uh, you know, it's just, so school was taken away from him because of a mask, and that's that's factual. wonder if there's any questions from the panel. Thank you. Thank you very much for your testimony. Uh, I have two questions. First one is, in your experience as a frontline teacher, can we get out of all of the damage that was done on the on the kids unless the institution is willing to admit that this was wrong how can you convince kids that wearing mask is is not no longer necessary but was never necessary in the first place is that is that something that you think it's possible within our current school system I think it involves conversations. I think it involves information. And, you know, there's a lot of information flying around. Um, you know, information can come from studies like this. Information can come from various sources. It's just, it's a, it's a conversation. It's a conversation, um, an acknowledgement of the, maybe if we're going back to the cost benefit, I'm not sure. Like, uh, Alan had mentioned, the adults are, that are in charge have an obligation. I mean, the students themselves aren't going, they're going to, take a lead on the adults. So it's a reflection on, it's a cost benefit that needs to be reflected upon and in the future needs to be done. So for example, in the future, if something comes along, it's like, remember what masking did to children before do we really want to do it again? I mean, we can't go back in time and change what ha happened, but I mean, one of my things is moving forward is ensuring that this, these sorts of things don't happen again unless they're absolutely necessary and we can prove it and not just sort of, you know, it's just messaging. It's, it's like a top down, you thou shalt, you know, um, thou shalt mask. And my information tells me that even in jurisdictions like Sweden, that masking was optional. You know, just let citizens decide to wear a mask. Let people can wear a mask if they want to wear a mask. But, you know, the, the forcefulness of it is damaging, right? So just a reflection, just an honest reflection and conversation. Um, there's lots of studies out there that say masking is ineffective. So let's just grab onto those studies and perpetuate the information as not disinformation, but actual studies. So just keep studies, keep be open, be mindful to competing studies. Um, and, and be open and mindful to the conversation that, 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 uh, authoritarian sort of approach is not really a pleasant approach at the end of the day. My, my other question is, I, I think I hear you said that the damage, if you want to the learning was probably more profound for people, for 
students that had more difficulty of learning or because they couldn't access as readily to good internet or other technology or support from family or community. So these children are probably more at risk to suffer the long-term consequences of the, of, of the lockdowns and all of the measure. So is there a plan that is put in place right now by the institution in order to address this need that was created by the lockdowns and all of the measure that probably affected mo even more this population of students that have issues with learning? Well, because we're in a crisis of funding, I think in large part, I mean, it's, it's, it's throwing, I mean, money can solve a lot of problems. I mean, you have the resources, human resources are, have to be in place, I guess, first. And right now there's, there's a lack of human resources, right? There's a decline in the people are leaving the profession. Teachers are leaving. So are we going to be able to, to um, replace the workforce? Um, right now it's not looking so good. Um, like I said, we're bringing in, university students that may or may not even become teachers and throwing them in the classroom to basically perhaps try their best, but in large part, maybe babysit for the day. Um, we have, my my wife actually works with special needs. She's an educational assistant and uh, they're they're highly trained professionals who, who have different sorts of degrees. They can be, have PSW, they can have uh, child psychology, for example. There's all sorts of uh, different sort of uh, educational sort of skill sets they bring um, and highly trained and skilled professionals. So my wife, for example, works with um, high needs children. And so um, in, in going off with uh, being off a few times and watching um, the replacements that are coming in they're they call them paid volunteers, which doesn't make sense. I know they're not, they're volunteering, but they're getting paid. Our board has brought in basically people off the street that want to make some money and work with children that, you know, Maybe may provide a background criminal check and want to make some money and maybe they love children and want to help out, but that's fine. But these, these workers are coming in and they're replacing the professionals who have the credentials and experience and education with zero credentials, experience and education, have no business being working with those children. It basically becomes a babysitting role and it becomes a safety issue because in large part, the training of an educational assistant deals with high behavior and mitigating damage when uh, special needs children are having, let's say, you know, a bad day. Um, so the damage can be confounded when you have people that uh, don't know what they're doing, um, trying to manage a situation that's, that's, that's problematic. And it's now you have two problems on hand, right? Instead of one. So uh, I don't see the human resources right now. I'm not sure how we, uh, I mean, with the baby boomers, we can get into uh, a demographic conversation about our aging population, but I'm not sure we're going to be able to find the human resources to, uh, in terms of education and even healthcare and other sectors, I'm not sure. Uh, you look at look at outside in the community, all the help wanted, uh, all the unemployment sort of um, the signs, help help here, help everywhere, right? So it's not being fulfilled. And then from a money standpoint, I mean, you can. Uh, let let me money, let me uh, stop you, Mr. McCurdy, because I think we're running out of time, and some of the other commissioners might have some questions. So, yeah, let's uh, if you don't mind, let's get to those. Not a problem. Good morning, Mr. McCurdy. Thank you for coming and appearing before us. I have a few questions, um, and some of them are related to testimony we heard from previous witnesses. We heard testimony from witnesses that were attacked. Uh, there was one um, yesterday who was shopping in Walmart, and she reported how she was attacked and people stood by. There was one in Truro where a gentleman went into a Canadian tire and was attacked. I wonder, you talk about fear in the children, and, I, and to my mind, this, these attacks, these, these reactions by people, including our officials and police, were due to what I would call terror. And you talked about fear in the children. But in my mind, there's a difference between fear and terror, and the adults were experiencing terror in the way they acted towards their neighbors, to their families. But adults have certain capacities and certain experiences would allow them to hopefully temper those emotions. So what levels of terror or fear did you see in these children who did not have the capacity to temper that? Well, that's a, that's a very interesting observation you've made there. I would, uh, I haven't thought of that. Um, it's, it sounds very valid to me. That's, that's certainly possible. 
like what you said, the capacity to uh, handle your emotions and um, and not. So we've learned as we were all in development how to handle you know, our emotions and cope. And so you're, maybe you're not you're seeing a lag in, in a sort of I don't want to say ability or skill set, but yeah, reacting and sort of having that emotional overlay of being living in constant fear and. Um, so perhaps you're seeing, yeah, um, inability to cope and that's just playing out in real time in terms of excess sort of incidents of violence in, in the school setting. Just maybe it's a, they're exercising, they're, it's just coming out. Everything's coming out right now. Um, whether they're contemplating, I'm doing something bad or not bad. It could just could be pure energy coming. It was contained and now the energy is coming out. It's not, it's, it's not good energy. In, in your class or in your school or with, uh, colleagues that you have discussed, have you uh, noticed any uh, perceptible increase in suicide, self-harm with the kids following the lockdowns and return to school or during the lockdowns? I can't speak to, to that data, I, on a, sort of on a personal level. Um, I do see a, lar a larger proportion of what I would consider despondent children who who look that like they're struggling in terms of depression, uh, and that translates into absenteeism, as absenteeism rates as well. So I'm seeing a higher than average absenteeism rate. Children that are still uh, sort of disengaged from school um, and despondent when at school. So there's a certainly a larger proportion of, of those children that are that are struggling on a day to day basis and struggling to be at school to get to school. So as I said, there's some there's some stats there that. Are saying coming out of the pandemic, they're they're still certainly struggling on an emotional level. Um, absolutely. Were vax mandates imposed on teachers? Not in uh, my jurisdiction. So with Thames Valley, they they were not. And the only I think the only jurisdiction in Ontario was Toronto. Uh, teachers had to get uh, were were mandated. Okay. Were um, how did 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 the administration? or the government, to your knowledge, come to the teachers themselves or teachers' organizations and review with them what they were considering as mandates prior to in, to uh, implementing them? In other words, did you have a say? Well, that's, no, of course. I, I think that was one of my biggest concerns was having a voice, having a, no, it was, it was directed, it's all top-down direction, thou shalt, um, and a lot of pressure. I mean, there's peer pressure. There's also pressure from your employment. Messaging from your employers about this is this all needs to be followed and strictly followed and so on and so forth. So that's a lot of that's a lot of psychological pressure in and of itself to be told this is how this is all going to play out. All the restrictions and all of the COVID sort of uh, uh, the overlays, like I was talking about, it's like the hand sanitizing, for example, and the mask wearing and the keyboard covering, the keyboard wiping down, and all those sorts of things. There's it's just sort of like a memo. This is the memo, and we're all to follow it from a managerial level. Well, you're looking at risking probably disciplinary if you walked outside of those uh, expectations. My last question, I have two sons who are teachers, and I know that on a regular basis they go for additional training. There's, uh, I guess what I would, they don't call them this anymore, but they're in-service days and they go to take courses. Prior to 2020 pandemic, did any of the teachers receive any training with regard to potential pandemics and what should be done to to reduce spread? And were you made aware of any pandemic planning that was in place prior to 2020? Absolutely not. That would have been virtually impossible, right? I think on many fronts, it was almost like, you know, this was all after the fact, right? The pandemic is in place and let's figure out how we're going to yeah, I mean, moving forward, maybe it's something where we, we should reflect on this and say, hey, listen, like next time, here's again, what we do, what we don't do. And, um, no, it was just throwing at teachers. Like we, this is what we're doing. We're walking into school and we're, I'm spray painting dots on the ground with a spray paint can in, out front of my portable so the students can stand on these dots and be two meters apart. And when they get inside, the desks are supposed to be two meters years apart and uh you know masks will be on it was just it was all just real time figure it out on the fly which for teachers was was stressful yeah you've probably heard stories considering your your children are teachers it's like just you you need to just figure this out teachers and you need to just make it happen and uh we're not i'm not a healthcare professional i'm not i mean my skill set is limited to what i have but just enacting and following through and trying to make sure these all of these requests we'll call them were were, were followed was challenging in and of itself 
right? So um, very stressful for sure. Thank you. Good morning. I have so many questions, so I'm not really sure where to begin. But I would like to ask, the line that we hear from the school boards in Ontario is that, well, we've lost two years of learning to COVID. I'm just wondering, do you ever, as a teacher, do you believe that we will ever recapture those two years of learning that these children have lost? My perspective and answer to that is that there, there's, I don't think it will be recovered fully. I think there's going to be a, a gap, always be a gap. I don't know how you can, I'm not sure how you close that. I don't, I think that this is why I'm so passionate. I think that the, the you know, the formational years of a child, let's say they say the most important years in the life of a human is between zero and zero and five, for example. I don't, I'm not a psychologist. I, I just can only venture to say that the damage that was done, the COVID babies and such, I, I don't think you can recover that wholly. I just, it's my, my gut feeling. Um, from an adolescent standpoint, um, there was one study that I that I read that said that the damage, the most damage to the adolescent age group was age, age 15 to 18, somewhere in that range, where the psychological damage on, on them was greater than other age cohorts. And uh, you could probably make an argument that every single kid, no matter their age, experienced that. I don't know. I don't. I mean, people can say, yeah, we'll close the gaps. Everything will, it'll work out. They'll be fine. Kids are resilient is the, what I hear all the time is that, you know, Kids are resilient. Um, we, you know, they'll get through it. We'll be okay. So, I mean, there's that argument as well as that. Ah, it's what's the, you can downplay all of this and say that they'll be fine. It's all, it'll all just work out in the end. And, but the problem with that is that you can't, you can't project into the future and then look back and then change it. If you find the, the results you don't, don't like and agree to that we messed up and go back in time and fix it. That's the problem is that it's a, it's a catch 22 or something like this. And in terms of going forward, we have school boards at this point in Ontario who have decided that the last set of standardized tests that were uh, given to the students will be the new bar, the new standard for education going forward. Do you see some serious issues with that mindset that we're just going to take the bar that comes after COVID as opposed to the standardized test results that came before COVID in terms of our long-term research into how our children are faring and how their reading and writing skills are being projected going forward? Well, we have to absolutely maintain the pre-COVID bar. We have to, we, I mean, yeah, we have to, we can't lower the bar. We have to put it back up. And that's what I've been trying to do in my classroom is I've slowly been, so the analogy would be like high jump or moving into track and field season would be to lower the bar down so that everyone can have success. But, um, as they build their skills, you know, because we've lost our practice with skill building is you've got to raise the bar back up slowly. What I, what I've been trying to do is raise it up incrementally, but my goal is to have that bar back up to where it was before. I mean, if I, I can talk 10 years from now and, and say, do I have that bar back up to where the bar was pre COVID? Will it be 20 years? How long will it take for me to have that bar back up where the kids, it can be that high and they can attain success. So right now the bars has to be lowered for all sorts of reasons. Um, but it needs, there needs to be a, a dedicated, concerted effort to, and, uh, you know, to decide that bar has to be back up to pre-COVID standards for all sorts of reasons. And my final question is, um, do you think you'll get an apology from Minister, Education Minister Lecce or your school board or school boards collectively or the Ministry of Education for what they have done to these children? Well, I don't think there'll be an apology. Of course, I don't. I don't expect that. I I would like a thank you of some, in some uh, form, some sort of thank you for, for helping to weather the storm. I'm just one frontline worker. Um, a thank you to everyone for keeping up with the effort and not giving up, not giving up on the children and the system. A, a, a large thank you would be in order. I think that would go a long way. Apology won't happen. Thank you. Uh, Mr. McCurdy, we had asked um, witnesses uh, who gave evidence to swear in. So if you don't mind, I'm just going to swear you in. Uh, so sure. do you swear that the evidence you've given is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God? Absolutely. Thank you very much, and thank you for coming today. Thank you, Galen, and thank you for... Uh for allowing me to speak. I really, really want to thank the commission also and the whole Inc. 
query for what they're doing and they're giving voices to the average citizen. I think that's critical. Um, I think it's imperative that the more people that can talk and we can have a, just a, a large conversation, then I guess the healing can start and we can move forward in a more productive fashion instead of being so divisive and contemptible. So thank you very much for running this inquiry and thank you for allowing me to, to testify. I greatly appreciate it. Thank you.